I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 21st, 2014. Coming up, after offering you a teaser last week during the Pledge Drive show, we now bring you an extended interview with author Paul Rayburn about his new book, Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. And later in the show, CU engineering professor Joe Ryan discusses mercury in our waterways and what's at stake for our health. We begin with a scientific anniversary. Today is the birthday of Alfred Nobel, founder of the world-renowned Nobel Prizes, and it comes just two weeks after the 2014 laureates were announced. Nobel was born in Stockholm in 1805 to a very poor family. He took after his father, who invented plywood, to develop an interest in engineering, especially explosives. In the 1860s, he developed several explosive devices, including dynamite. He set up 90 weapons factories worldwide. An erroneous obituary in 1888, following the death of his brother, condemned Nobel for his invention of dynamite. It's widely believed that reading this obit made him decide to leave a better legacy. After his death in 1891, Nobel left most of his wealth in trust to fund the awards that would become the Nobel Prizes. Regular listeners know that How on Earth's Joel Parker is a science team member on the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission, which is the first spacecraft to visit a comet. Rosetta has reached its goal and is beginning the scientific phase of the mission, which includes sending a robotic lander named Philae down to the comet's surface. Later this week, Joel will give a talk about Rosetta at the CU Boulder campus. Titled Catching a Comet with the Rosetta Spacecraft, Joel will take you through Rosetta's expedition so far and give you a glimpse of what will happen next. He'll also share the excitement of why we study comets and what they can tell us about the solar system as it was billions of years ago and as it is today. You have two chances to hear Joel talk about the Rosetta Comet mission on both Thursday and Friday this week, October 23rd and 24th. Both nights it's at 7 p.m. at the Fisk Planetarium. For more information, go to Fisk, that's F-I-S-K-E, Colorado.edu. Mother, father, please explain to me. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. If you're a father, or a son or a daughter for that matter, which pretty much covers everyone. Listen up. Science journalist Paul Rayburn's latest book, Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked, explores what seems like a no-brainer question. But the answers, he discovers, surprised even him. Rayburn talked with me recently about the book, starting with its title. One of the things that struck me when I first looked at the book was that the title at once seems benign, but really provocative. In fact, maybe offensive to some people, particularly lesbians and single mothers. We've got Barack Obama, after all, who didn't do so poorly despite having been <laughs> raised without a father. So what, what's your response right. to that? Right, right. We, we, have, we actually have Barack Obama and we have Bill Clinton, who uh, both did okay with single mothers or, you know, minimal or no contact with their fathers. So 
yes. So it's clear from not only those examples but lots of others that single parents and lesbian parents and gay parents can raise perfectly healthy kids. And there's science behind that. There are a lot of studies now looking at these families. We've had, you know, unconventional kinds of families around for a long time, so there's been time to do research. And, in fact, by, you know, the measures that psychologists use, kids from those families do fine. But it's different. You know, I think it's fair to say, and I try to lay this out in the book, that while fathers aren't essential, fathers are important. And fathers do unique things uh, with regard to kids. So one example of that would be play. Um, you might not think play is a serious subject, but with regard to fatherhood, <laughs> it's absolutely a serious subject. The way the way men or the way fathers play with kids, on average, is quite different from the the way mothers play with kids. More ruckus, more more ruckus, more rambunctious, rolling around on the floor, less structured, tickling, surprising, jumping out from behind the couch, whatever it might be. Lots of mothers do that, too, and lots of fathers don't do that. But on average, if you look at a large group of people, fathers are much more likely to do that. And you might ask uh, what value that has for kids, and it turns out this is, you know, one of the surprises, that play with fathers is far more important than we might have thought. If you look at these kids whose fathers are very involved in that way, they make, you know, one of the big steps that kids have to make is the transition to school whether it's pre-K or kindergarten, these kids do a much better job making that transition to school if their fathers have played with them in this way and been involved. A, they a have transition meaning problems. socially? From meaning they get along much better socially. with other kids? That's right, yes, that's right. So socially, for starters, and then academically as well as they go through elementary school and they have fewer behavioral problems. And some of these things track even into adulthood. So this has a huge impact on kids' personalities. People sometimes talk about fathers as the bridge to the outside world. So in many families now, and in most families a few decades ago, when, when a lot of mothers were home, uh, fathers would go out you know, to the broader world, work for the day, come back, bring some of that world back with them by their virtue of their activities and their stories that they tell, help start, you know, start to introduce kids to that broader world. This kind of rambunctious play also does that because in the family, you know, it's warm and secure. We have a happy family. Um, in the outside world, it's much different. And fathers getting kids accustomed to, you know, surprises and, you know, sudden movements and all those kinds of things that happen in rambunctious play helps prepare kids to move from the security of the family to, you know, a more unpredictable. Interesting. And I know in the book you walk readers through different stages of childhood and teenage and into adult years as, as kids anyway. And I, I was struck by, in the teenage years, will you say that these studies show that the absent of a father at home can have a big effect on the sexual development and behavior of their teenage daughters, early or puberty other other instances. So what what's up with that science? So puberty again is one of those times in our lives that's a you know primal biological change, and it's certainly, as far as we can tell, nothing we can do about that. It happens when it happens, and um, you know it happens to everybody within a relatively short window of a year or two, and uh, it's a big deal. And and people you know kids change beginning the change into adulthood and. They, change physically, they change psychologically and socially, and so enough about that. It's a big deal. Uh, and so it turns out that when fathers are not present in the home, uh, young girls go into puberty significantly earlier than if a father is there. Now, this sounds impossible. 
Well, it sounds um, a little counterintuitive, is, even not just impossible. Well, well, both. So, first of all, how did the presence or absence of a father affect this fundamentally important biological principle? We're not saying he's doing something. We're not saying anything. He's either there or not there. That's the mystery. And uh, secondly, why would uh, puberty occur earlier? So, a couple of things. We don't really know why the father's absence makes this change. It's clear that it does. Uh, and, and the best guess is that the father's scent, his pheromones, are picked up by the young girl's body in some way, and that they, those could affect, you know, the presence or absence of those pheromones can affect the timing of puberty. So that's maybe the answer to that mystery. We don't know for sure, and people are trying to figure that out. The other question you ask is, why would, why would a young girl go into puberty earlier? And this is an evolutionary argument. Again, people don't know, but here's what they think might be going on. That is that uh, if, a, if a young girl is in an environment without a father, her body may uh, you know, register that as a less secure environment. If she's in a less secure environment, the best biological strategy for her might be to mature faster and to get out of the family and create her own family, which might be more secure. So... Uh, and it turns out, you know, in, in ways that aren't so good, uh, girls who go into early puberty uh, in these circumstances are more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior. Uh, they're more likely to become pregnant as teenagers and a lot of things that don't fit very well in our society. But basically what's going on is they're trying to, you know, get out of the family sooner to try, try to find a more secure family situation. And you say that's in the absence of fathers. And then in the big picture, you say that all these studies show that indeed fathers in America are disappearing from the family. I mean, we have so untraditional families anyway, but, but really, in a sense, it begins with the genes. You say that the Y chromosome itself is shrinking. The, yeah, that's right. So the, the Y chromosome, which at some point... Um, you know, became the uh, trigger of making a developing fetus a male, um, carried a lot of genes that duplicated some of what was on the X, uh, X chromosome, and that's the female chromosome. And um, the genes that weren't necessary have sort of dropped off. That's the way evolution works. If a gene isn't doing something essential, uh, natural selection will eventually discard it. And so the Y chromosome has shrunk. The good news is it's not disappearing. It's now down to a relatively small number of genes that all do seem to have important functions. So it's plateaued? So probably, it's plateaued. Yeah, that's right. So we're not going to lose men altogether. <laughs> there are some people who might think that's a good thing and some who <laughs> might think that's a bad thing. But <laughs> the, the other question that you raise is uh, with regard to, you know, roughly 50% of families of married couples divorce. And uh, that's, you know, it goes up and down a little bit, but it hasn't changed too much in a long while. And the... We, we like to think that couples can overcome their differences for the sake of the kids and that parents can stay in touch and that they can work out some kind of an arrangement uh, in which they can both continue their relationships with the kids. That's not what happens. In, depending on what study you look at, the numbers are a little different. Between one-third and one-half of divorced fathers report that they either never see their kids or almost never see their kids. And I have to get this one out of the way because it's always bugged me as a woman that men can go on and have kids well into their 70s, if not later, and we right. women for now anyway. 
cannot. Right. And, and studies historically have really focused on the women that come age 35, you're really raising the risk of passing on problems, consequences to your kids. Right. And you're showing that in recent studies over the last few years, it shows that men as well, maybe, maybe different, but right about at the age of 40 is this threshold beyond which they show an increasing risk of passing on right. consequences, autism and others, to the kids. That's right. So, so the, the thing that probably the single most important genetic issue that the public understands that all of us have heard for many years is that women's risk, in particular, of, of having childhood Down syndrome increases as she gets older. And it's not, there's nothing sort of magic about 35. It, the risk gets a little bit higher um, every year. I mean, it's a little higher at 29 than it is at 28. Um, but, you know, in the mid-30s, people begin to think about it a little bit and worry about it a little bit more. And nobody knows, however, that as fathers get older, that their age also affects the, the risk of Down syndrome in the kids. And it's not that different from the risk of mothers. It's just that nobody has looked at this before. And as you point out, uh, old, the kids of older fathers have an increased risk of schizophrenia, an increased risk of autism, and a number of other sort of rare and unusual uh, inherited diseases. This is something that's quite new. Probably over the last 10 years or so, we get the first hints of this. And uh, some people even think that, you know, the, the age of fathers on average is rising in the U.S., and we also have a rise in autism, which has not been completely explained. And this is a controversial point, but some researchers think that the increasing age of fathers may be responsible for a lot of those increased number of autism cases. Interesting. And do they know much about so, the mechanism itself? I mean, is it the morphology of the sperm, or what, what's happening? The idea, the reason nobody looked at this for a long time is because, you know, women are born with all the eggs they're going to have as, as adults. Alas. Um, but, but, alas, but men manufacture new sperm all the time. So if it's new and it's fresh and it's, you know, any time it's needed for reproduction, then how could it be any problem? How, how could it be associated with problems with aging? You know, it's, it's, it's manufactured at age 50 the same way it is at age 30 for a man. Well, so when somebody, as with many of these things, the answer seems so clear nobody looked at it. But when people did finally start to look at it, there is something in men that ages, and that is something called spermatogonia, which are the sperm factories. So the cells in which the sperm are made age, and as, you know, as with women, as these things age, they're more likely to be errors. That was Paul Rayburn, author of Do Fathers Matter? what science is telling us about the parent we've overlooked. So we have two copies of his book left from last week's Pledge Drive. If you call by 10 o'clock, one can be yours. For a pledge of $60 or more to KGNU, call now at 303-449-4885. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. Next time you take a sip of mountain spring water or catch a wild trout here in Colorado, you might be getting a bit more than you bargained for. Scientists have found mercury in Colorado waterways and in the fish that swim in them. And recent research shows that wildfires in recent years may have added to the problem. To discuss the findings, How on Earth's reporter Jane Palmer talked with Joe Ryan, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Colorado. 
Joe is also director of Air Water Gas, an institute that researches the impacts of oil and gas drilling on the environment. Could it be that when it comes to mercury, natural gas would be a better option than more traditional coal-fired power plants? Joe, you primarily look at mercury in our water. What are some of the more recent results that you've been finding? Some of the results we've found involve how forest fires affect the transport of mercury through mostly aquatic ecosystems, water bodies. And probably the most interesting thing that could report right away, the fire changes the nature of the soil and its ability to hold on to mercury. And when that soil ends up eroding after fires, that is a common occurrence, it's getting into reservoirs and we think then ending up to a greater extent in fish. And we've seen over the last half a decade or so a big increase in the number of fish consumption advisories for lakes and reservoirs, particularly in southwestern Colorado. And our original hypothesis going into this was that it had something to do with, with the occurrence of fire nearby these reservoirs. You're saying there's mercury in our water? Is it something we should be worried about? It's uh, something that is a, a public health concern if people eat a lot of fish from these certain reservoirs. The issue is that mercury gets turned into a certain form, it's called methylmercury, that accumulates in various organisms as we go up the food chain. And then it gets high enough in fish so that when we eat the fish, it ends up affecting our nervous systems primarily. So what are the symptoms of ingesting too much mercury? You know, the best example is it goes back to the Mad Hatter. Uh, mercury was used in processing or conditioning the felt that was used for hats. And so hatters were ended up breathing a lot of mercury vapors. And that's uh, one form of, of mercury exposure. I mean, mercury basically gets into our bodies and it affects the function of our nervous system primarily. And it can lead to a lot of different kinds of symptoms that reflect improper nervous system function. And in fact, there have been campaigns to try to reduce the amount of mercury that we are exposed to. We don't have mercury thermometers to break anymore. But what you're saying is that the mercury that really we really need to worry about in Colorado is this methylmercury that ends up in lakes, that ends up in fish. So really then the kind of take-home message is don't eat so much fish. That <laughs> <right>? <laughs> well, that's exactly the recommendation for these fish consumption advisories. They lay out a certain amount that's determined to be a safe level of intake, and it's different for adult males versus pregnant females versus children. Okay. So then with this recent study where you found that fires have caused more mercury to end up as methylmercury, do we then go into a kind of from orange to red alert thing where we then eat even less fish? Is this the take-home message? The uh, state of Colorado is, is working its way across the state doing surveys of, of mercury and fish, and then I think they, they must have some schedule where they would come back to various reservoirs and, uh, and retest them over time. I would say if it would be a good recommendation to check reservoirs and lakes that that are nearby fires, and, and that would a location that we might expect to see a change in the amount of mercury in fish, even if it had been tested in the recent past. So my main question is, how does this mercury get into our water? Yeah, the main source is, is coal-fired power plants. There's a small amount of mercury in coal, and of course when you burn it, it turns it into primarily into mercury vapor. The power plants do a good job of scrubbing a lot of that 
mercury out of the, the emissions from the power plants, but some of it still gets out and gets into the atmosphere. Some of it stays in the atmosphere for a long time. Some of it gets deposited relatively close within 50, 100 miles of the power plants. Right. So when you've done these site surveys, are you seeing high levels of mercury near coal-fired power plants? Yes. And I would mention in particular the first area that we got interested in was southwestern Colorado, the Four Corners area. Quite a few coal-fired power plants down there. The folks who were uh, at the Mountain Studies Institute that we collaborated with them on this project had National Science Foundation funding. They had been involved in monitoring mercury deposition in precipitation in rain and snowfall for about five years before we got started with them. And they uh, somewhat proudly or in a perverse sense of being proud of it, they say that they have one of the precipitation samples that has the highest mercury concentration of any precipitation sample that's been measured in the United States. Right, interesting. So we are going to see it very localized around mining, around coal-fired power plants, natural gas? Natural gas, no. No. That's a that's a, one of the reasons to replace coal with natural gas. There are other other pollutants that we worry about that also would be decreased by that change. Right. So isn't this something that you're looking at right now? At the moment, are you director of Air, Water, Gas, which is an institute? Can you tell me a little bit more about that institute? Yeah, we have a, a big National Science Foundation project called Air, Water, Gas Sustainability Research Network. And the second part of that name was a special program that the National Science Foundation started three years ago. The general idea was to do some investigations related to sustainability. We had been doing a little bit of work with some funding from the university's outreach office trying to respond to um, Colorado landowners who are concerned about the increased oil and gas development. And the big goal of this is to try to figure out some sort of framework for better incorporating science into decisions about particularly oil and gas development policy and regulations. So when you say framework, are you going out and you're doing the science and then you're collecting the science and then you're talking to the policymakers? Is that how you envisage it working? Basically, yes. We have 27 investigators, nine different institutions. Most of those are environmental scientists trying to better assess what kind of environmental, economic, and social impacts oil and gas are having. So what you're really trying to do with this institute is bring science to the table and pin down all the facts and all the observations. There's definitely just a plain old knowledge gap. You're right. And I think that was another reason that we thought we could make a contribution here. But to put it in this framework of what do we know, what do we not know, what do we need to learn to make better decisions, and gradually we feel like we're moving things from the what do we not know towards the what do we know category. And you're really just trying to bring all these observations, these facts to the light, and then hope that by providing all this information, one, you give people the information they want, two, that policymakers will then make intelligent policies and regulations on the basis of the science that you've discovered. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the ultimate goal, we think. If, if we're successful, as we judge our own progress, that's what we're looking for. But I think personally, we feel like there's a need for better decision making, and we feel like we could do something about it. And, and we still have uh, three of five years left to see if we can make a difference there. Thank you very much. You're welcome. 
That was Joe Ryan from the University of Colorado talking with How on Earth's Jane Palmer about mercury in our water. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers this quarter are Jane Palmer and Kendra Kruger. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Dave Matthews Band. Headline contributions today from Jane Palmer and Beth Bennett. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran.